Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And you're a former journalist. I don't know about former. I consider myself still to be someone who could be a journalist. journalist. Yeah, and, and you are as well. Yeah, this was one of the first things we learned we had in common. And I think it's a huge part of both how we read the news uh, and why we're, I think, both interested in doing this show. But I don't know that we've ever actually talked about our newspaper histories or if we if we have, we haven't since that fateful evening in Iowa City when we met. Um, so what was your path in journalism? I had a very traditional path. I mean, I I worked on my college newspaper, the Daily Princetonian, um, and then I applied to they had they I think they still have these like most newspapers have like summer internships for students who are coming right out of college to cover various beats for for reporters who are going on vacation basically and so I was an intern reporter for the Star and I covered for the cop reporter Glenn Rice um, and I would get up at like 3:30 in the morning and go down to the police headquarters and review the the homicide detectives that they got off work to see if anybody got killed overnight. Good times. Good times at the small newspapers. <laughs> That's not a small, it was a huge newspaper at the time, much larger than it is today. Um, yeah, I mean, we, there, there were a couple of city hall reporters. They had a giant newsroom. They had bureaus all over the city. It was fun. How did you get started? Um, I guess my, my first newspaper internship after college, um, where I was also in my college newspaper, The Crimson, I was on the copy desk, the obit desk, the metro desk, um, did some cops too at the, the Harrisburg Patriot News. Um, where my first assignment was to follow around a guy dressed as Jesus carrying a cross. Um, I was like, am I the intern you want to assign to this? They were like, definitely. I was like, great. Um, Anyway, so I feel like that experience gave me a real appreciation for local journalism in particular. So I was fascinated a couple of weeks ago to read about an unusual situation unfolding in a small newspaper in Marion, Kansas. I looked this up. It's not so far from you. And the police there raided the local newspaper. Yeah, and it appears to have been completely hinky, um, unconstitutional, probably. Uh, they raided the home of publisher Joan Meyer, too, and she was extremely upset about it. And she passed away the next day at the age of 96. She was the mother of the, of the guy who was running the paper. So actually, no, even even oh. she lived an even longer life. She was 98. And oh, that 98. Was the first Sorry. Thing about this, I read that, that was the first thing about the story that caught my attention. And the more I read, the more surprising it got. And ultimately, I found myself really alarmed about what the story said or suggested about how freedom of the press is being attacked in this country at this crucial moment, what feels to me like a crucial moment. So is Kansas the future of press censorship in the U.S.? We wanted to hear more about that. So joining us today to talk about what happened to the Marion record and why it matters is the editor-in-chief of Kansas Reflector, Sherman Smith. Sherman writes about things that powerful people don't want you to know. A two-time Kansas Press Association Journalist of the Year, 
His award-winning reporting includes stories about education, technology, foster care, voting, COVID-19, sex abuse, and access to reproductive health care. Before founding Kansas Reflector in 2020, he spent 16 years as the Topeka Capital, at the Topeka Capital Journal. He graduated from Emporia State University in 2004, um, and he was raised in the country at the dead, uh, as his bio says. He was raised in the country at the, at the end of a dead-end road in Lyon County. Sherman, welcome to the show. It's the thrill of a lifetime. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a thrill, uh, thrill for us, too. <laughs> I also think you have one of the coolest bios I've, I've ever read. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. We invited you here because a couple of weeks ago, on August 11th, the, per- the police in Marion, Kansas, raided the local newspaper, the Marion Record, and also the home of its publisher. And, and you've been covering this story for your own publication so what did the police say they were looking for? What did they actually want when they did that? And was any of that legitimate? <laughs> well, we have the affidavits now that supported the search warrants. And so we know what police said they were looking for. Uh, they were trying to find evidence of identity theft because a reporter for the Marion County Record had received a tip that somebody had a DUI. She went to a, a public database the Kansas Department of Revenue has you type in somebody's driver's license number and date of birth, you can see their driver's license history. And she verified the information. Uh, they had talked to police about the story, but ended up not doing the story. And so police talked to the the uh, the, the restaurant owner at the, the heart of this who was trying to get a liquor license said, you know, they have your driver's license history. And, uh, you know, they, they concluded that this must be identity theft because they had used her information to access a public record. Uh, and we know now, of course, that the Department of Revenue has said that this is a public record. Anybody can go on and look at it. Uh, but they use this as the justification for the raid. Um, you know, the reporter committed identity theft, so we have to come in and take not just that reporter's computer, but everybody's computer, everybody's cell phone, other records. They went to the publisher's home. They went to the home of the city councilwoman who had also received a tip. Uh, you know, it appears that this was really just an effort to punish the newspaper and a councilwoman who had been, you know, vocal in the community and trying to shine a light about things that were going on in a way that other people just really didn't like. The affidavit starts. So wait, with, I just want to go back. Yeah. I want to go back just a little bit before we go that go on that far down the road. Um, is now so. There's a guy who wants to have a liquor license. A woman, a woman who wants to have it a liquor license. It matters whether a, a, a woman, right, or already has a liquor license. Okay, let me get yeah. this. Let's get that all straight. Yeah. Yeah. It's confusing. It's a, a small town with a lot of characters. Yeah. Yes. So the, the person who has the who, who needs a liquor, liquor license, the question, it, it's relevant whether or not they've had a DUI. Right. Right. So that the person who's, in, who's, in, in, who's writing about the story goes to fact check whether or not they have had, in fact, a DUI. That is called fact checking in journalism, not identity theft. Right. Right. They find out that, in fact, this fact is true, which is part of the job of a journalist. And then because they use the driver's license number to access this information, the police say that they're committing identity theft. Is that what's happening? They're calling fact checking identity theft, in essence. Yeah, that's exactly what, what appears to have happened here. All right. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure it's just no, a, it's yeah. a, it's alarming because yeah. like you're supposed to the 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 way you prevent so, there being mistakes is so. to fact check, and if that becomes criminal, that's really a problem. You know, on the surface, this seems like a farce, and so you just wonder what what were police really doing here? Um, they're the uh, the newspaper believes they were just being punished for writing stories that people in town didn't like. The affidavit starts with this meeting uh, at this restaurant 
and uh, the, the restaurant owner having the police chief kick the reporters out because she didn't want them there, even though it was supposed to be an open meeting. Uh, and, it, and it goes up to this point where uh, supposedly the publisher of the paper told her, the restaurant owner, that she needed to stop complaining about the paper. They were going to write a story that kind of revealed everything that they had. And then they did write that story. So, you know, it's almost like the affidavit is is laying out the the grounds for some sort of frivolous blackmail claim. Not that blackmail actually existed, but that's how it reads. But the actual crime that they're supposed to be investigating is identity theft. So you were talking a little bit about um, all of the materials that they took and um, the lead of your Kansas, the Kansas Reflector story um, that ran the next day is pretty striking. And I wonder if you would read from that for us. Yeah, we published this online uh, just hours after the, the raid. I had help in writing the story from several staff members, um, Tim Carpenter, Sam Bailey, Rachel Meepro. Uh, and the headline was Police Staged Chilling Raid on Marion County Newspaper Seizing Computers, Records, and Cell Phones. In an unprecedented raid Friday, local law enforcement seized computers, cell phones, and reporting materials from the Marion County Record Office, the newspaper's reporters, and the publisher's home. Eric Meyer, owner and publisher of the newspaper, said police were motivated by a confidential source who leaked sensitive documents to the newspaper, and the message was clear. Mind your own business, or we're going to step on you. The city's entire five-officer police force and two sheriff's deputies took everything we have, Meyer said, and it wasn't clear how the newspaper staff would take the weekly publication to press Tuesday night. The raid followed news stories about a restaurant owner who kicked reporters out of a meeting last week with U.S. Representative Jake LaTurner and revelations about the restaurant owner's lack of a driver's license and conviction for drunken driving. Meyer said he had never heard of police raiding a newspaper office during his 20 years at the Milwaukee Journal or 26 years teaching journalism at the University of Illinois. It's going to have a chilling effect on us even tackling issues, Meyer said, as well as a chilling effect on the people giving us information. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Thank you so much. So that story, which, I mean, kind of, yeah, captures the scene. Clearly one of the effects of this raid, right, is that the newspaper is on the edge of not being able to publish. And I know from your coverage, from reading other stories as well, that, of course, the newspaper ended up managing to publish the next day. The staff pulled an all-nighter and its front page headline read, seized but not silenced. And they actually cobbled together a computer. I really, I, yeah. I'm imagining the, the 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 TV drama episode adapted from this. Um, you know, to you know, they what they went and found like a disk drive. Um, it sounds like it was pretty, um, pretty MacGyver over there in the newsroom. So um, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. What do you think that I do before we record every time this show? I know that just outside the frame of of what we see on YouTube, there's all sorts of, all sorts of. There's a naked motherboard here that I just touch wires <laughs> this podcast, to. This Goodness. podcast is held together by paper clips. Well, the, in this case, the raid was on a Friday, their weekly paper. So they, they put the paper together Tuesday night and send it to press and deliver it Wednesday morning. And so they had a, a few days in between there to try to figure out what to do. There was a lot of just outpouring of support from people all over the state, all over the country, some even internationally. Uh, they went into, you know, this... The stressful period where they're trying to fulfill a lot of interview requests. Uh, the publisher Eric Meyer is appearing on 
uh, CNN and all these other you know major national outlets trying to help people understand the severity of what happened in his newsroom. And meanwhile, they're like rummaging around the back shop for discarded old computers that they might be able to to put together and, and actually have a machine that they can use. So they found an old Windows XP machine, if you remember the days of XP, uh, and, and was able to bring it back to life and get some programs on it that allowed them to actually put the paper out the, that Tuesday night. Um, the uh, people from the Press Association, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and, and some others were kind of like forming a barricade at one point Tuesday afternoon at the front of the office so that the, the staff could just have some peace and quiet in the back and actually put this paper together. Uh, and they, they were there all night trying to make it work. Um, as you mentioned, they had to go find a, a standalone disk drive that they could plug into it. Uh, they back up their all of their uh, data, their, their files are backed up on DVDs that they burn like you know like we used to do years ago so but they were a month and a half behind on burning these discs so they had to go find discs from mid-June and figure out how to plug them into an old machine that didn't even have a functioning disk drive just to be able to, to pull this together um, so I think they finished the paper around 5 a.m. Wednesday morning sent it out to the press um, and it arrived uh, somewhere around 11 o'clock 10 o'clock something like that late Wednesday morning and they got the paper out. So the people who didn't want them to publish did not did not get what they wanted. But I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, the story has quite a cast of characters. I appreciate that in one of your stories, you basically have a cast of characters, like a list. And I wonder if you can yeah. talk about two of them in particular, um, because uh, Newell, the, the restaurant owner to whom you refer, is not the only person who would maybe have a reason to want these folks not to have their paper come out. Because there's also the police chief who led the raid and the judge who signed off on it. And I understand that the newspaper had been investigating the police chief. And I wonder if you can talk about those two people and their respective histories and, and also their conflicts with the paper. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you say, Carrie Newell was the restaurant owner and she had been fighting with the paper. But, you know, from my perspective, this is something we know in small towns across Kansas, there's there are characters like this and she enjoys the same freedom of speech that the press does. So I'm not concerned that Carrie Newell was upset with the newspaper. What concerns me is that the police chief and a magistrate basically empowered her or used her as a, a catalyst to go do this. The police chief, Gideon Cody, had come from the Kansas City, Missouri police force where he was a captain. Uh, he arrived in or was hired in April. Uh, the newspaper had received some, uh, a couple of emails raising some concerns about his behavior in Kansas City. They, they weren't able to get anybody to go on the record. They couldn't provide any evidence to support those allegations. They questioned the police chief about it, uh, questioned a council member about it. So the police chief knew that they'd had this, these concerns. Uh, and Eric Meyer told me the day of the raid that one of the things he was worried about was that the police chief would now know who had brought these concerns to the paper. By looking at his computer, looking at his emails, he would have that information. Uh, as it turns out, the Kansas City Star was able to, to report on this, and now the paper has as well that there are serious allegations of you know inappropriate language that he used with staff. He had run over, apparently had run over a dead body at a crime scene. Um, kind of just concerning behavior that uh, his colleagues didn't appreciate in Missouri. He was under investigation, was at risk of being demoted when he was hired in Marion. Uh, and of course, the city council member who was in charge of looking at his background, uh, you know, according to the paper, just disregarded their inquiry about it uh, and was just kind of mad that they were even bothering to look into it. The other individual here is the magistrate who signed the search warrant, 
Wait a second. I yeah. want to talk more about this cop guy okay. for a second. Because he's from, that's from Kansas City where I live. And I'm writing about the Kansas City Police Department now. And it seems so obvious that like, okay, this guy, he gets in trouble. He's about to face disciplinary stuff. He's like, I quit. And now I'm going to take a job in a small town in Kansas. And they're like, it's like some crazy Western, like, oh, the sheriff's coming to town. He's going to be the, like, maybe it's probably hard to yeah. hire experienced law enforcement in a town. Um, somebody like said that. It's, is that true yeah i mean somebody said this is like a carl hyacin novel or something uh yes <laughs> where he shows up in town i i do think you know there are challenges with uh hiring attorneys prosecutors judges police um really any industry frankly in some of these small towns in kansas so you know maybe they had a a, a limited list one of the the finalists though was somebody who had been on the police force for a while uh, and has subsequently de- uh, resigned after being passed over they, uh, they never like to hire insiders. They always want the shiny person from the city. Maybe they'll learn. Um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out, that I think it, I just think that story is remarkable and, and should have been a red flag to anyone who was looking into that guy to, to, about hiring him. I mean, he's clearly, I don't think they wanted to make national news by hiring this guy and ending up right. having him causing problems for the city. Yeah, I think people in Marion are uh, really uncomfortable with the attention that they're getting right now. The- All right, sorry, I've interrupted you about talking about the. Oh, oh no, I just wanted to say so. I would love to. Yeah, let's talk also about the judge. The judge is pretty interesting. Yeah, this is a a magistrate, uh, which in Kansas there are very few qualifications to be a magistrate judge in Kansas. Um, you just have to have a high school diploma, and then within eighteen months pass a certification. Uh, you don't even have to be a licensed attorney. In this case, Laura VR is a licensed attorney. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was the county attorney in a neighboring county for a long time. Uh, she also had a couple of DUIs herself, and the Wichita Eagle has written about this. Um, she had a DUI in one county and then a DUI in the county where she became the prosecutor. Uh, that second DUI involved uh, drunkenly crashing into a school building, according to the arrest record. Mm-hmm. But the arrest record has since disappeared as though it had been expunged. She was never, uh, apparently never prosecuted for that crime in the county where she was the prosecutor. So that record has disappeared from the court system, and now she's the magistrate. And she signed off on, on this search warrant, which should have been obvious to uh, an attorney or any any lawfully trained judge that this was going to raise red flags. There are federal and state protections for journalists specifically for these situations. Even if you think the journalist has committed a crime, you have to be careful because of the chilling effect that it has on, on your ability to report the news that you can't just go in and take all of their materials. You would have to go before a judge and try to get a subpoena for it, convince the judge in an open hearing where a journalist and the newspaper have a chance to argue their case. Uh, and that's not what happened here. And of course, even if you thought this one reporter had committed this crime, it doesn't justify taking all of the reporter's stuff. I don't even think it justifies taking her stuff because she had already admitted to what she did. She she was up front and said, yeah, I went to the database, looked it up and, and verified the information. I want to draw a, p- comp- a parallel between what's happening here and the way that you have officials using the mechanics of official accusation, right, but not facts, right, to, to get what they want with what the national GOP is doing. And that may not be something that you want to, a connection you want to draw, Sherman. But, you know, when you look at what's happening with Hunter Biden and there's a, invented charges and all kinds of stuff and trying to claim that money was given to Joe Biden, which there's no evidence of, right, but we're using congressional hearings to try to create news, right? This 
this sort of news manufacturing and then using the legal, the trappings of the legal system to basically express power, but without actual facts to back it up. This is a, is a small version of what I believe is happening on a larger scale in America, and that I think the right would like to do everywhere. You know, often in the political arena, people are protected by free speech. Courts have been very clear in saying that it's okay to lie politically. You can lie because it's a First Amendment guarantee. But when you get inside a court of law, you can't lie. And that's where you want to see the, the distinction. Um, you know, in Kansas, we had a prominent official who ran around talking about voter fraud, got to court and was held in contempt. And part of that is because you have to be truthful in court. Uh, and so you want to, you would hope that as this case moves forward. Is that Kobach you're talking about? Chris Kobach? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. We, we, we like to use his name because he also sucks. <laughs> well, that's your opinion. Uh, I think for me, it's just okay, important. That's definitely my opinion. It's important that people <laughs> just understand that facts are not political, that, you know, facts are facts, that this is the, you know, truth is, is not political. And it's important to point out, too, that the newspaper supporters in this town in a, a very deep red part of the state are predominantly uh, Trump supporters. We had a distribution worker in the newspaper office getting that paper out that day wearing a Keep America Great Trump 2024 shirt. We had a Navy veteran from Wichita who drove up to buy a six-month subscription in support of the paper who told me he's a big Donald Trump fan. There were people wearing MAGA hats walking into the newspaper office to buy a copy of the paper that day. You know, for them, this is a clear example of government overreach. And they don't care about the politics. You don't go in and raid a newspaper office under flimsy pretense. Well, that is awesome to hear. I'm so glad you said that. That's cool. I like to, I'm glad to hear that. So the materials have been returned to the paper. Um, the county attorney kind of looked at this and decided that there wasn't you know, reasonable cause for the raid on the newspaper. And he said the materials would be returned. They've been returned. But even so, there's kind of no going back from this. The story that you read from actually ends with Eric Meyer comparing this experience to the experiences of his graduate students in journalism, um, students from Egypt who told him about you know, working at a publication and having people come in and seize all their materials in an attempt to prevent them from publishing. And then this story made international headlines. As you mentioned, a rep from CPJ showed up. Um, and the publisher talks about people reacting to this by being scared to give the newspaper information. I think that's very real. Like, you know, they said they would protect their source and, and the law put them in a, like, agents of the law put them in a position where they weren't able to do it, which is outrageous. Um, so what does it mean for American journalism that something like this can happen? Do you, do you see this incident as an outlier or a harbinger of what's to come in a kind of moment of creeping authoritarianism and, and also low trust in the media, maybe broadly speaking? Well, the encouraging thing to me is the response to this sends a very clear message that journalists and the public are not going to tolerate this kind of behavior in the United States. You know, there's extraordinary pushback to what happened here. Um, we'd like to see more consequences for the people who are involved in, in orchestrating this raid so that other police know that they this is not an option on the, on the table for them. You know, if, they, if there had been lukewarm response and no consequences for, for this action, then it would have been open season on journalists everywhere, which is very concerning. Uh, there's still some, some unanswered pieces of this, though. Police told the newspaper staff that they had not looked at anything after they took it. We don't know if that's true yet. 
the I was one of a couple of reporters who were were in the evidence locker when they were handing the stuff back to the forensic analysis experts who was hired by the newspaper. Um, they, I believe they they got their their stuff back this week, uh, but they're still reviewing basically the information. Uh, the The forensic analysis person takes a, an image of the hard drive of all of these devices and is still going over that to see who accessed this, what did they access. Um, you know, hopefully we'll we'll get some answers soon about whether police really did look up their their confidential sources. So I am a um, uh, pheasant and quail hunter, which means that I have spent a lot of time in a lot of small Kansas towns. Marion is not one of them. I just I wondered, have you been there? I, I went there the first time on the day that they published, Wednesday the sixteenth. Okay. So I just wondered if you, having seen it, like could just describe it and maybe like what the restaurant at, in question is like, Chef's Plate at Parlor, um, uh, at par- Chef's Plate at Parlor 1886. Is that the full name of it? And it's in the Elgin Hotel or an, an old hotel there? Yeah, the, I didn't go inside, but the there's a formal restaurant inside the hotel. The, the hotel is owned by the county attorney's brother and uh, the, the sister-in-law. Uh, they they had the liquor license for that restaurant and it was about to expire, which is why Carrie Newell needed to renew or go get her own liquor license. She also has uh, an establishment called Carrie's Kitchen kind of across the street from that. But this is sort of, uh, you know, what you think of when you think of a small town in Kansas, a, a big sort of main street, big wide main street where you can park your car anywhere and you may not even need to lock your doors downtown. There's a, a little library. And they have like older brick buildings facing onto the street, they, like kind of they do. like a yeah, yeah. Um, both both okay. sides of the street. Um, the newspaper office is kind of to the side down one of the streets to the side of that, uh, and across from the courthouse, there's a library, a couple of other small businesses. You know, it's just a place where you could walk around and feel safe. Um, you could talk to people that you've never met and strike up a good conversation. Uh, as, as many of us did as we were waiting for something to happen that day. Oh, no, I just so this is a town of of, of about 4,000 people, if I remember right? Uh, about 2,000 people. About 2,000 people. Marin. Okay. And I was struck by that detail that you mentioned that the county attorney who had the evidence returned to the newspaper, yeah, is the brother of the restaurant owner. So it's a very small town. Well, the, the brother uh, of the, the building owner okay. where the restaurant is located. And yeah, you have a small town, they're going to be, everybody knows everybody in a small town. Everybody's connected in some way. Um, You know, there could be tensions that go back generations, you know, 150 years perhaps. And so this this is in a situation where it is just rife with conflict of interest possibilities. So liquor licenses are very contentious, even in Kansas City. And in fact, my neighborhood association is like, complaining about liquor license renewal of a, of a neighborhood bar that I think there shouldn't be complaining about, honestly, and it's a way of harassing the bar. Um, and uh, so, but in a small town, you need restaurants, you yeah. need any kind of business, right? And, 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 and a paper is generally supportive of business. They want the businesses to work in the town because they need readers and they need the. So how did the paper and the restaurant get sideways on this thing, right? I mean, I would think yeah. the paper would want the liquor license to be approved. Well, I don't know that they were necessarily for or against the, the liquor license, but I think they were exploring some of the, 
the concerns here, like whether somebody who has uh, a DUI history should be able to get a liquor license. I think there's some state rules about that, um, whether or not you can actually transfer a liquor license, which appears to to be what happened here. The previous owners are allowing you to use their liquor license. You know, that's that's actually not really lawful. It's not clear why how they were able okay. to even do this for months. So I think that you have a newspaper pointing things like that out and other people are saying, hey, you're supposed to help the community, not criticize the community. And that can lead into some serious tension. I mean, I guess I would say that that the thing a newspaper does that helps the community is actually make sure everyone's doing things lawfully. I mean, that's what happens when you don't have newspapers. Nobody checks on those things. Then you don't know. Well, just because you point out that somebody's not following the rules doesn't mean you necessarily think it's a good rule. I've been in legislative committees where they're bringing up another obscure liquor law that Kansas has on its books. And I just think, why do we have all of these stupid laws? And why are we just trying to tweak this and we should get rid of so many of them? Uh, I covered a hearing where somebody was trying to get a liquor license in Topeka, but was barred because she was married to somebody who worked for a sheriff's office in another county. And there are these rules that go back, you know, decades uh, to the idea that police would run around busting up cabarets. And so you can't get a liquor license if you're married to a police officer in Kansas. What a stupid law, right? So, you know, there are these rules about transferring liquor licenses or why we need to, you know, I think all of that could be a separate debate, but what the newspaper was simply reporting on is the rules aren't being followed here. So Carrie Newell, um, the restaurant owner whose driver's license was at issue here, she presumably, well, tell me if this right or not, jumped to the conclusion of identity theft herself. Um, the police like thought that there was no other way that her, her license record could have been accessed, assumed this was the case. The police also did not thoroughly check this. Um, and either or or assumed that identity theft was the case, and then had this massive overreach. So, but I or, mean, I think, or they maybe weren't even concerned about really checking it if they had some other motive that we don't know about yet. Exactly, and I think like your comment from earlier that you know, of course, Carrie Newell has free speech rights um, and can say whatever she wants about the newspaper um, is really interesting because like I mean, she's the essentially she was used. Right. Like this this particular instance is used to sort of justify the police raid. She has said that also that the newspaper has, quote, um, a reputation for contortion. Um, But people in the community are showing up in their MAGA shirts, apparently, um, with donuts, um, you know, to buy subscriptions to support the newspaper. So what role does the Marion record fulfill in the community? I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the weeklies I grew up with or the small the small town papers I grew up with. Like, what is their what is their place in that community? And what is it? I mean, as the editor of a publication, what is it like for you to see this happen to your peers? You know, the the publisher, I think, is is very proud of the the work that they've done you know, since he came back a couple of years ago to run the, the family newspaper. They've held local people accountable. They, they cover city council meetings and, and other issues. Uh, you know, I talked to people in town who said, you know, sometimes people complain that they're misquoting people from a city council meeting as if you couldn't just go online and verify the quotes yourself. So it's even when they're reporting things that are true and verifiable, people question them um, because, you know, I think journalists everywhere face this issue that, uh, they they want you to be more positive, or they they get tired of all the negative news. But like, we're not going to write a story that says the the police chief wrote a a perfectly reasonable search warrant in affidavit, and the judge signed, and it helped them crack a case. Like, that's what you expect them to do. So you write about these things where 
public officials are misusing their power. And then the public says, hey, why are you so negative? And in a small town, I think that that tension is very real when there are, again, only 2,000 people here. You're going to have to run into everybody that you're writing about. Uh, those, those tensions can get out of hand sometimes. But the newspaper has written about you know, a scandal involving a, a former city administrator, police, uh, former police chief, resi- resignation, all of these other issues where, you know, over time people say, why, why are you always shining light on, on these problematic things uh, and not writing about the, the good things in our community? So, you know, for me, I, I sympathize with the, the newspaper because we run into that sometimes as well. Even when we do write positive stories, you're not going to get credit for it, right? Everybody's going to say, why are you so negative? It seems to me like I was talking before about sort of the broad sense in the United States that like trust in media has degraded, which I would trace in large part to, um, you know, I don't want to say the death of local journalism because I feel like this story um, is evidence that local journalism is in some places really thriving actually um, and is really, you know, vibrant. But because there are fewer local newspapers, your like average person is less likely to have ever interacted with a reporter. So reporters are strangers to so many people, right? Like, I mean, I, as a kid, as a child was interviewed by reporters, um, you know, thought of it as like a job I could have as like a, like that reporters were not scary necessarily. And now we're in this phase where, I don't know. So I just, like, how much do you feel like when you're going around interviewing people or talking, I'm, I'm struck also that in this town where the small newspaper is, this set of people whom, I don't know, maybe according to stereotype, wearing their MAGA shirts and MAGA hats, one would presume, like Trump has talked about how nasty the media is. We wouldn't necessarily assume that people wearing that merch would would go into the newspaper and cheer for it. But here they seem to have real relationships with those reporters. When you go out and interview people in small town Kansas, like what are the interactions that you're having? Like, are you having to, ex- are you explaining your profession a lot? Are you, do people react to you with dis- distrust? What is that like? Yeah, I, you know, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's something that, that I've talked a lot about as well. The American Press Institute about five years ago had a, a big study that came out uh, on, on the media. And some of the big takeaways that people wrote about were these ideas like the average person doesn't distinguish between news and opinion, or they don't know some of the jargon that we use in journalism. But the the finding that I thought was most astonishing was, you know, something like 30% of the population said they had ever met a reporter. And I thought that was, that's at the heart of, of one of the challenges we have today. Because you're exactly right. If if this were, we'll say, 1965 and a reporter walked up to somebody, that, that person would understand who this was, why they were asking them questions, what they were going to do with that information. And today, I think there's a lot of distrust because they they don't know what reporters do, what our, what our role is, or why, you know, why we're asking them these questions in the first place. Um, I run into issues a lot where people are really uncomfortable telling me their name and where they're from. Uh, I have to say, one of the things that separates us from fake news is we have real people in our stories who are from real places and that that adds credibility to the information but somebody who's never met you you know saying yeah here's the spelling of my name and where i live uh they that's a a hurdle that we have to get over sometimes but it is different i think between when we talk to people there's a distinction between what they think of as the media Uh, typically they're thinking of cable tv personalities whether it's uh, somebody on Fox News or a Rachel Maddow or you know whoever it is, somebody who has virtually nothing in common with what I do for a living. 
And I think they do appreciate when, uh, you know, for, for the Kansas Reflector, for instance, we are Kansans who are writing about Kansans and for Kansans. And that's a big difference, even in Marion, from some of the national reporters who are there. You know, this is an outsider who's telling the rest of the world about us. Um, there's a lot less trust there. Uh, I think everyday Kansans tend to have a, a, a lot better appreciation for local journalists than people realize. When Donald Trump came to Topeka in 2018, I went up and down the, the long lines, tens of thousands of people waiting to get into this arena and talk to them about why they were there, why they liked Donald Trump, what they thought of the media. Everybody was just sort of like euphoric because they were there to see this person that they, they greatly admired, like they were going to a, a rock concert or something like this was Taylor Swift to them. And nobody gave me any concerns about being a journalist. They were very happy that I was there giving them a voice, talking to them, interested in what they wanted to say. The same people on the inside of the arena hours later, uh, they have the media roped off in the middle of this thing and you have Donald Trump on the stage and he gets to the part where he says, and the media, and points to us. And you could hear the, the booze raining down from all directions, but you could also feel the wind from the booze, of the, just the breath hitting you from all four sides. These same people who are so appreciative outside are are now hating you because of what you what you stand for what you there why you're there what you're doing and i think to me that says more about leadership than it does about my everyday fellow kansans um i think it says that leaders have a a, a dangerous impact on how people view the media and that's something that people should think about when they're they're looking at who they want to vote for and put in office so speaking of the media I mean, and the importance of these small town papers like the, the Marion paper and even larger town papers like the Topeka Capital Journal where we used to work or the Kansas City Star where I uh, once was an intern. Are you the guy who's putting them out of business? <laughs> or, or are you the guy who's, who's, who's created a, uh, you know, a, a publication that, is hap- that, that is, exists because those papers have been mismanaged? I mean, what is, what is the, can you talk about the Kansas Reflector, what it is, how it came to be? how you started doing that instead of being a reporter at the Topeka Capital Journal. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Our parent organization is States Newsroom and they're based out of North Carolina. They're a nonprofit that is trying to put journalists back into state houses where the ranks have been depleted over the years. And they have this idea that we should do journalism as a public good, as a public service. Uh, which is, of course, very appealing to me, and to do this as a nonprofit, um, for me, it's been this this dream come true. I launched Kansas Reflector in 2020, and we're trying to support other media. We make all of our stories available for them to republish for free, uh, and we're not trying to to compete with anybody or you know take anybody out of a job. I was very encouraged that my former employer, when my senior reporter Tim Carpenter and I left the Topeka Capital Journal to launch Kansas Reflector. They hired two more reporters to replace us, and so we didn't have a, a reduction in statehouse reporters because of that. Uh, we've managed to you know, coexist with the Associated Press, uh, the Kansas City Star and Wichita Eagle have a reporter, sometimes more reporters than, than that in the, in the statehouse. Um, public radio has a presence there. We still have a, a thriving presence in the statehouse, and we're addressing this need of getting more stories about statewide issues, issues for a statewide audience out to readers in newspapers across the state that are publishing us on a weekly basis where 
Otherwise, they wouldn't know to look for this information. Now it's right in front of them. Or maybe they wouldn't be able to you know, seek it out if it was beyond a, a, a paywall in, in some other part of the state where they don't live. Uh, so I think we're providing that service to people, um, but we're certainly not here to, to replace local journalists. And I think there's this concern that I have where the Marion County record is, is kind of an outlier. There's, there's not really a sound business model that I can see to support newspapers long term. And as the it doesn't matter if it's owned by a corporation or a local family, the, the ranks of, of journalists just keep getting smaller and smaller at these papers. Uh, when I started at the Capitol Journal in 2004, there were more people on the copy desk, which was my first job, than there are people in the newsroom today. And the Marion County record is an outlier because you have a local family that, that owns this, that has a sizable newspaper staff and is willing to stand up uh, to what happened here. But, there are papers in Kansas where there's just one person in the newsroom who might be a 20-something uh, who wouldn't know what to, to do if this happened, and the owner is a corporation 20 states away. You know, that's a little concerning to me. Uh, we, we can't go replace the, the five reporters that are missing in uh, 20 communities across the state. So I think it's a challenge that, that needs to be addressed and and. It, it's going to take, a, I think, a lot of people coming together to find those solutions. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Sherman. And listeners, don't forget to check out the Kansas Reflector and the Marion Record online. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sherman. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!